0: Welcome to 143 Pixels. I'm Bill, and we're here to talk about the games that we love. Each episode, I bring a friend, and that friend brings a game. This week, my friend is Jeff Kanata, and the game that he brought is Ultima 7. Back in 2007, I found, uh, I stumbled upon this show called The Totally Rad Show. And it was a show about all of the things that I was a huge fan of. It was about movies and TV shows and video games, and you name it. It was something that I was really into. So, of course, I watched every single episode. Uh, Each week, my wife would sit down, we would put it up on the TV, and we would welcome Jeff and Alex and Dan into our house to talk about the stuff that we really, really liked. Um, The show was all about being excited about stuff. And one of Jeff's most famous quotes on that show is that he loves loving things. So I knew that I had to get him on 143 pixels because that's what this show is all about. It's about the games that we love. It's about being excited about a specific game. It is about sharing that excitement with other people. So Jeff was one of my uh, you know, shoot for the moon picks for a guest that I would like to have on this show. And I reached out to him and he said yes and I couldn't believe it. So um, I, I was very, very happy that Jeff said yes. Um, Currently, you can find uh, Jeff's work in... um, like. If you guys think I do a lot of podcasts, Jeff does a lot of podcasting. You can hear him each and every week on the Slash Filmcast, which is a movie review show. Um, DLC is his gaming podcast. He has a comedy podcast called We Have Concerns, which won the 2016 Podcast Award for Best Entertainment Podcast. He also is the Dungeon Master for The Dungeon Run, a Dungeons & Dragons series with very, very high production quality. Jeff is a absolute pro when it comes to podcasting, and I'm very happy that he joined me on the show. So what did we talk about? Well, we obviously talked a bunch about Ultima 7, although, as often happens whenever I'm talking to people, we veer off in different directions and We talked about a million things. We talked about how geek culture has... It's no longer geek culture. It's just culture these days. We talked about how the beginning of Ultima 7 grabbed you and pulled you into the world in a completely different way than any other game before it and how it became this living, breathing world for you to inhabit. And we talked about how maybe sometimes you get stuck in a game and maybe having access to the internet would have completely changed Jeff's experience playing Ultima 7. We talked about the experience of when you were a kid and you you went to the store to pick out a game and then you had to wait before you got home. There's so many awesome things that we talked about in this uh, in this episode. I think that you are in for a real treat. So, You've heard about who Jeff is and why I invited him on the show. Now I'm going to tell you a little bit about the game that is Ultima 7, The Black Gate. Ultima 7, The Black Gate, obviously the seventh game in the Ultima series, was developed and published by Origin Systems. It was designed by Richard Garriott, who worked with a team of, I believe, over 80 people in order to bring this game to fruition. Uh, If you've never heard of Richard Garriott, then Google Lord British and you'll know who I'm talking about. He's one of the most famous game designers of the 90s and uh, super, super... Uh, intense kind of personality. Uh, it is a fantasy RPG played from in real time from a bird's eye perspective. Uh, basically, you play as the Avatar and the Avatar sees a strange message on his computer screen and there's this unknown being who calls himself the Guardian. They claim that Britannia, the world of Ultima, has entered a true age of enlightenment And soon everyone, including the avatar himself, will bow before a new lord. At this moment, a moon gate materializes in the avatar. You step through it and enter Britannia. You emerge in the city of Trinsic, where your old friend Iolo tells you that 200 years have passed since your last visit. I don't want to say much more about it. I'm trying to avoid spoilers, so I'm not going to tell you the rest. Okay, let's talk about reception. Uh, this this game earned Role Playing Game of the Year from Computer Gaming World back in 1992. Uh, PC Gamer UK in 1994 said that The Black Gate and its uh, expansion pack Serpent Isle are the 39th best computer game of all time. Of course, this was back in 1994. They said it was. Absolutely enormous. We're talking months of play here with complex, absorbing, and evolving multiple subplots and storylines. Garriott's commitment to creating a complete fantasy world has been fully realized here. And I'm here to tell you this is exactly what Jeff was telling me about when he was talking about the game. It's not a game that I ever played. My first experience playing an Ultima game was Ultima Online, so I never got to play this one, and Jeff almost has me ready to buy it. So uh, hold hold on to your wallets before listening to the interview portion of this, because he's going to tell you about it. Let's talk about the back of the box. The back of the box is weird, okay? Most games use the back of the box to really sell the game. Most of the back of Ultima 7 is simply black, with Ultima 7 emblazoned in blue in the traditional Ultima font, followed by a very, very simple uh, typography, the black gate underneath. If you look at the bottom of the box, it simply said, Lord British, Richard Garriott, uh, Lord British presents the first chapter in the third book of the award-winning Ultima Saga. And then they listed a few selling points about, you know, using a mouse and a cinematic soundtrack and all that stuff. But, you know, there was almost nothing as far as this is why you should buy this game. And I think that's because people knew Ultima, even me, who even, you know, I had never played any of the Ultima games. I had heard of them, but I was too busy playing console games uh, at the time. Now, if you buy the game and then you opened up the box, inside there was a cool cloth map, which Jeff and I end up talking about. There was also a little card in there, and that card read, Lord British Presents the First Chapter in the Third Book of the Award-Winning Ultima Saga. For the first time, Ultima 7, The Black Gate, combines the familiar sword and sorcery elements of previous adventures with those of murder mysteries and horror thrillers. In addition to fighting monsters and exploring dungeons, you'll need to master the arts of investigation and detection to uncover the secrets of the Black Gate. Uh, I'm I'm very, very impressed by what I've read about this game, and it's currently on sale at GOG.com for, I think it was like seven bucks, and this, this is the game itself and all of the expansions that came with it. Uh, let me tell you a couple of quick little trivia bits, and then we'll get to the interview. Uh, Ultima 7 is the last in the series to be produced by Origin, which is very telling because as we, as Jeff and I talk about this game, we talk about the sequels and how the sequels were so disappointing to him. The sequels to Ultima 7, Ultima 8, and Ultima 9 were made by EA, Electronic Arts, which is very funny that Richard Garriott not a fan of EA. In fact, uh, in Ultima 7, there are two antagonists in the game and their names are Elizabeth and Abraham. And if you take them and you put their names together, there you go, it's EA. One more piece of very interesting uh, information about this is this is the first game in the Ultima series that really wanted you to use a mouse. It was designed for a mouse. In fact, when you start playing the game, if you don't have a mouse, there is a character named Iolo, which will then break the fourth wall and they'll tell you, Avatar, for the sake of our mutual sanity, I strongly suggest that thou shouldst purchase a mouse, which I just find to be hilarious i love it when games do that kind of thing where they break the fourth wall and bring you into it in that way and this game jeff's going to tell you all about how this game really breaks the fourth wall at the very beginning of the game all right well now you know about jeff you know all about ultima seven it's time for you to hear why this is one of this is jeff's favorite game of all time i'll see you on the other side everyone Avatar, know that Britannia has entered into a new age of enlightenment. Know that the time has finally come for the one true Lord of Britannia to take his place at the head of his people. Under my guidance, Britannia will flourish, and all of the people shall rejoice and pay homage to their new guardian. Know that you too shall kneel before me, Avatar. You too will soon acknowledge my authority. For I shall be your companion, your provider, and your master.
1: (laughs) They have been, play structures have been completely sold out since COVID started. I mean, absolutely cannot get them anywhere from anyone for months and months and months because everybody's in the same boat. Yeah. So we we, literally every single day we were looking at my wife was scouring websites, (laughs) checking to see if things were in stock. And I mean, it took until four months in for us. I mean, because we started looking right away because we were like, oh, this is going to be bad. Um, And uh, finally, finally got one. So it's been it's been a long
0: process. That's so, I, the, the things that you don't think of as yeah. being suddenly hard to find is just so weird that never, you know, my daughter is uh, already graduated college. My son is 12 and doesn't really care about play sets. That right. never would have occurred to me that that would be something that's hard to find. So that's really, really interesting.
1: It didn't occur to us either. we were just like, <laughs> oh, you know, what would be nice is if we you know finally got a swing set in the backyard and then it was like, this four month battle of like oh they're in stock my my wife would be like they're in stock and she'd push purchase and be like sold out you know it's like that was it was it was like mm-hmm. getting a
0: um you know a Wii on release day or, or a Cabbage <laughs> Patch Kid or something crazy you know. All right, well, you brought up games, so let's let's shift gears and get into video games. Uh, yeah. Of all the games that you could have chosen to talk about on this show, <laughs> you decided to pick Ultima 7. So uh, how come? What? Why'd you choose it? Ultima 7 is my favorite video game of all time, and, and I
1: think always will be. I mean, if, of course, it is outshined these days technologically, but I don't think anything will ever replace it in my heart. I don't think it is the best video game of all time. I think that that it it is hampered by its, its era in that respect. Um, certainly there are more sophisticated games, games that took concepts that it wanted to do and did them better. Um, but for me, it will always be my favorite video game because it absolutely blew my mind at the time. It's a game I still think about. I think it is genius on a number of levels. I was already a fan of the Ultima series by the time 7 came around, but I, the the memories I, there was like a summer, I guess in 92, <laughs> just <laughs> aging me, you know, considerably. Um but uh there's a summer where I played that game every single day in my bedroom on my little IBM PC XT, you know, 8086 computer and uh I listened to please hammer don't hurt him on a cassette <laughs> on a walkman oh and, no uh, and it was the best summer ever I mean I was a p- true nerd when nerd really meant something meant you were a nerd I didn't have any friends my friends were the you know Iolo and Shamino and Dupree the, the characters you meet in in Ultima and uh I got lost in that fantasy world and I think it 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 was a salvation in a lot of ways. It was a respite from the harsh world that, that I, <laughs> as a as a young preteen, I was you know uh, dealing with. But it also expanded my mind and invited me into this world of imagination, and it just it was magic.
0: So you, you know you said something important there that you were a nerd when being a nerd meant being a nerd, and yeah. uh, like you were so into games that you wrote comic books and all that stuff yeah right and but you wrote like you wrote a a a newspaper column when you (laughs) were a kid talking about the games that you loved did you review ultima 7 for that for that job i believe so actually i think so i think it was one of the few games i gave a 10
1: to uh which you know at the time was you know big deal i think i did um yeah, it, that was my first job, was writing for the newspaper. A uh, professional writer, I had a column every Saturday. uh, made $25 a week. made $25 on this column. It was like half a page in the Saturday edition. And it was basically an advertisement to beat me up. It's cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, hey, look at the nerd. Because it's really hard for people now, especially young people, who know that video games are completely ingrained in pop culture, are are cool video games are cool twitch is cool video game celebrities are cool video game properties are cool video games were so not cool uh when i was a kid and comic books weren't cool i mean it's a wild to me the world that we're living in now where geek culture is culture geek culture is the mainstream culture i mean the biggest movies the biggest books the biggest properties of uh, biggest tv shows i mean everything is the stuff that I was made fun of for liking when I was a kid. And mm-hmm. it's all now like the coolest stuff, which kind of still seems surreal to me in a large sense. But at that time, I remember vividly, vividly, the word, if the word nerd was said on a television show or in passing, I would get like my, I would get sweat. I would break out in a cold sweat. And like, mm-hmm. I knew it was me and I knew it was a bad thing to be, and it would make me feel really anxious, and I would hate, I didn't want my parents to know that I was a nerd. Of course they knew, of course they knew, (laughs) but I didn't want, like, I didn't (laughs) want people to know that I was this thing that was
0: this pariah, you know, it was, uh, it was a strange experience. I can imagine for a moment, teenage Jeff Coming into the the living room, his parents are watching Family Matters and Oracles on yeah. the screen, and and Jeff says, "Mom, Dad, I'm a nerd," and they're like, "Yeah, <laughs> no, I know." <laughs> I didn't even have the
1: courage to do that. I was just like, "They'll never know." You know, my mom's like, "Are you gonna go to the dance?" And I was
0: like, <laughs> <laughs> "You know,
1: I'm gonna play video games and read superhero stories." I know. think
0: I think you you know you talk about an experience that a lot of people from our generation have had um and it's funny like you talk about geek culture becoming the culture do you think that's just because the geeks grew up and took power and the 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 non-geeks um grew up and you know they didn't the stuff that they were into just kind of falls by the wayside where but we just kept holding on to that stuff as we got older that's a good question. I, I don't know why. I, I, I experienced
1: it happening around me and I was mystified the entire time that it was mainstreamifying. You know, I remember I remember so clearly when Harry Potter was the biggest book in the world and people were like standing in line around the block in costumes waiting for Harry Potter. And I was like, what world am I living in? This is <laughs> craziness. Like, the people, this is a nerdy thing. Um, I honestly, to answer your question, I think it's the internet. I think the invention of the internet, the the fact that when I was a kid, and I've said this before, and no one ever believes me, I thought, I swear to you, I thought I was the only person that liked Star Wars as much as I do. Oh, I I, I can feel that. I just didn't interact with anybody that did. Like, I loved Star Wars. I was super into it. I had a couple of friends that had action figures and were into it, but like the idea that there were other people that were as fanatical about that mythology as I was just seemed impossible. And I remember meeting in, when I like, um <laughs> I started working at a movie theater in high school. It was my second job after the, after writing in the newspaper, my first like going to a place job. Mm-hmm. And I met a guy who was super into Star Wars and I just thought it was the craziest thing. And he was like, and I gave him my action figures because I just wanted him to be my friend. I was like, oh, here, do you want the wampa? I have the, you don't have that one? <laughs> have mine, which I regret to this day. But uh, I just thought it was crazy that anybody would, that I wasn't on this island, right? I wasn't completely yeah. isolated in my, my obsessions and i say that to explain that i think that the internet created a world sort of after i sort of lived through that right i was i was just before the the internet really happened it, you know i it happened in my you know late teens early 20s and that made people realize that there are like-minded people no matter what you're into there's going to be a community that can be built because you're no longer inhibited by geography or time zone or any you you can connect to people based on the things you like without restriction and i think honestly that may be what contributed most to these niches becoming mainstream because people are like oh they're galvanized beyond behind this shared
0: love. Yeah, and, and I'm with you on that. And and you know you mentioned niches. It's weird because video games like when we were kids they were a niche all by themselves, but now they're broken into a bunch of different niches, but even back then like I have to confess, and don't don't get mad, Jeff, he's going to hang up, I can feel it. <laughs> I never played Ultima 7. You know, at the time oh. I was a Super NES guy, so I I yeah. wasn't playing the games on the PC as much. I didn't have the PC for it. So I was really more of a console guy. So I never played it, but you know, you got... a terrible
1: version of it. There was a terrible port of it for the super NES. So I'm glad you didn't play that <laughs> because you would
0: have, you would have a very bad opinion of it. If you had played the, the console port. Yeah. My, my first uh, Ultima game that I played was Ultima online. Uh, and I loved it. It was amazing. Yeah. I still have the cloth map sitting on the, on the shelf on the other side Uh, of the room you know speaking of the things that come with games you know uh ultimus i was doing a little research because i hadn't played this game before the interview and i saw it came with like a challenge coin and a cloth map and do you have all that stuff like did you hold on to it or did you give it to other people that you got jobs with
1: (laughs) (laughs) did i bribe friends yeah please be my friend um (laughs) I I do still have it. I have my box of Ultima 7 somewhere around here. I should have pulled it out. That was silly. I should have just pulled it out when knowing that we were going to talk about it. I have my Ultima 7 Black Gate box. I think it's on that shelf over there. Um, But more than that, I do a a Dungeons & Dragons show now where I'm the dungeon master. And so I've invented this world and I created a map and everything. And I had this amazing artist, JP Kuvert, draw a map and... As soon as he delivered this incredible art of this map that he made for the world that I invented, I went and found a place that would print it on cloth. Oh. And so I have a cloth map of my world because to me, that's because of Ultima, mm-hmm. that's the like definition of
0: making fantasy. it. Yeah,
1: that's the definition yeah. of making it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I—I I mean, it's hung over there on my wall. Uh, it is a, a cloth map of my world, and yeah, that stuff. When I was a kid and and in love with with video games, what would happen is you would go and get uh, a new game or something. Your parents were like, oh, "It's your birthday or, or a special occasion or whatever," you get to go and pick a game, and you go to the mall or wherever, Babbages or software, etc. <laughs> yes, uh, these old you know these old chains that existed, and you get to you buy the game. And then you have hours where you don't get to play it because you're still driving around with mom doing the rest oh, yeah. of the tours. And you oh, you get to open the box and you look at the manual and the manual is this thick uh-huh. and it has art inside it. And you have little tchotchkes that you can play with and fiddle around and your imagination is running wild and you can't wait to get home and, and, and see all these things that the manual is describing. You know, and then at a certain point, manuals just went away or there was like a pamphlet for a while in a cd case that was like you know you know 14 lines of the most bare bones stuff and then of course of course now it's just all gone and you have to go online and get into chat rooms and find out how to how to play anything in dark souls like you have no idea what's even going (laughs) on um but I i loved all that like that the the texture of that the uh the tactile nature of having a physical thing that made the world seem even more real, um, this digital fantasy world. And I think, you know, another reason I think that that video games became more mainstream is just the technology got so much better that you don't have to use your imagination as much, Mm -hmm. right? Those first games, I mean, I was playing Zork, and you know, right. text-based adventures where you really have to use your imagination. And then even the early Ultimas, like most of them, you have to really imagine the world. You have to bridge this gap of of technology where the graphics just couldn't, you, you, you know, you had some ANSI characters or you had very crude uh, representations of terrain or monsters or whatever, and you had to imagine it in your head. And I think at a certain point, the technology got so good that I think it, it Came mainstream because people are like, Oh, I see. I don't have to, I don't have to pretend. I don't
0: have to c- meet this thing halfway. It really is creating these, these worlds. And that is interesting. So you said you were already a fan of Ultima and then you talked a little bit about, you know, your parents taking you to the store and, and, you know, having to sit there and, and pour through the manual while you had to wait until you got home. Um, yeah. talk about how you got Ultima 7. Do you remember? Did your parents buy that for you? Oh, Did you ask for it?
1: I, I wish I remembered. I don't remember specifically getting that one. But I know that I, I'm i sure I would have asked for it. I'm sure I would have uh, wanted it. Uh, Ultima, I think Ultima 5 was the first Ultima I played. And then I went back and played Ultima 4, which is an amazing game. Well, the, the idea behind Ultima 4, which is basically just be a virtuous person. Mm-hmm. like It's not even go kill monsters. It's Just be a good person, which is like a wild idea for a fantasy story is like there's a bunch of virtues in the world and you have to go and learn them. You have to learn (laughs) to be compassionate, like bonkers. Uh, And then Ultima 5 was Ultima 5 was the first Ultima I had, but I was already into computer role playing games at that time. The game that I do remember most getting and like blowing my mind was Bard's Tale the first Bard's Tale, the Brian Fargo game, Um, I remember that so vividly. It came in this, like, thin... Those old electronic arts would come in these thin paper sleeves. And uh, it was a first-person, party-based adventure on a grid. And it just, like, I blew my mind. And my friend and I would play that for hours. And um, so I think that was the gateway into, like, oh, I like computer role-playing games now i like these fantasy worlds and so then i got into ultima and might and magic and wizardry and like all the games of the of that time the old D like gold
0: box games I played oh, I all that those. stuff yeah. yeah um so so ultima 7 is like it's the first one where they they you know they got rid of the grid system they got rid of a bunch of things that were i i maybe core to what Ultima was they got rid of turn-based uh stuff It all everything suddenly happened in real time unless you went into the menus I'm I'm guessing since this is your favorite game of all time that you think that all of those changes were for the better
1: yes I mean I I it blew my mind because Ultima 5 and 6 uh, all the games at that time were a little window a little box that was the game world Mm -hmm. and then huge menu systems, right? Right. Just like text everywhere uh, because that's what you could do. You could put text on a screen and and graphics were a challenge, right? And then all of a sudden, these new video cards came out VGA, right? 256 (laughs) colors, 256 colors. I mean, the first computer I had, my dad had a Hercules video card, which was monochrome, which meant everything was Green. Orange. Oh, okay. It was orange. orange. Okay. We had orange everywhere on the screen. And then uh, I remember getting CGA, which was four colors. Which four you ask? Pink, <laughs> white, purple. Uh I can't remember the last one. Anyway, it was like magenta. It was the weirdest four colors. Played tons of games on those.
0: There, you EGA, know, but there's something to be colors. said about that CGA color palette that it it oh. made such a weird and distinct art style that we saw with those games, I still have fond memories of it. Sorry to interrupt, go ahead.
1: No, not at all. No, I agree 100%. I mean, I played so many games in those, those colors are nostalgic for me, as -hmm. as you were saying. Um, But then EGA, right, is 16 colors. It's like, oh, what are you gonna do with 16 colors? And then of course, you know, this vibrant 256 color palette with VGA and you have a game like Ultima that goes, hey, you know, talk about games now that don't have a HUD right? Ultima 7 was like no HUD. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: What? It's just the entire screen, my entire CRT (laughs) computer monitor was the game world and in vibrant 256 colors. And to me, I still, my favorite kind of video game still is a top-down isometric view. And I think it's absolutely because of Ultima 7. Like, Looking down, slightly skewed on a fantasy world to me still is just magical. Uh, seeing how how they rendered that world and uh, all the items in it and all the places and, and all the people and those little portraits that come up every time you talk to someone. The artistry in that game is still, I think, beautiful.
0: Very, very beautiful. So You know, you talk about all of the items that are in the game. One of the things that I read about Ultima 7 was that it was like everything was interactable. Like you could could interact with everything in the game. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Utterly mind-blowing. I mean, now you have games people are familiar with, you know, the Bethesda stuff, uh, Mm -hmm. Elder Scrolls, where you walk into a place and everything is an object. But to do that with pixels at that time in 1992, I mean... This is a game that felt like a living, breathing world. Uh, NPCs had schedules. They would go out and go to work and they would come back home and you could observe them. Uh, You could go and bake bread. There was a big thing. I remember Ultima 7 was like, you can bake bread, but it didn't mean you just went and baked bread. You could go to a field, pick wheat, take that wheat to a mill, mill it into flour, take that flour, put it into a pan, put that pan into an oven, and bake it into bread. Like, that was just one of a million things that you could do in the game. Every single object was an object, had this beautiful paper doll system for things that on your characters, on your party members. And I loved, loved, loved how the inventory system worked. You would pull up these windows and this is before Windows, right? This was a DOS game. There was no right. Windows. There was no, you didn't, computers didn't have individual Windows. But if you opened a bag or a chest or any container in the game world, a little window came up that looked like the outline of a bag or a chest or an empty log or whatever it was that you were opening. And you could just drag stuff and drop it in there and it would. That's where it would be forever. So you could have these stashes of items all around the game world that would be permanent and and um, persistent. And the visualization of that, the feeling of, like, I'm throwing stuff into a bag. I remember spending hours and hours and hours organizing bags. This is my bag of, <laughs> of potions. This is my bag of keys. This is my bag of armor. You know, it was like it, it, that was so revolutionary and so different and so far beyond what anybody else was doing in that space at that time i think that's one of the reasons that game had such a big impression on me
0: um did you play through the game multiple times or did you finish it and move on to the next thing um i don't i don't know if i think that i
1: i spent so much time just uh, loving the world and experiencing the world that I don't even think I finished it. I don't even (laughs) think I finished I remember when the expansion came out, I think that's probably when I finished it, but it wasn't like I was racing through this game. I was, it's a completely different mentality at that age. Like it wasn't about completing a game or beating a game. It was just living in that world. And it just felt like this infinite place that I could be in forever. And I could just go and do things and, um, and I remember when the there's an expansion that came out called the um, Serpent Serpent Isle Serpent's Serpent Isle, Isle I think yeah. yeah. And at that point it was like well now I got to now I got to complete the game but I didn't want it to end. Like I didn't it's a it's a very different mindset that I was in at that time. I wasn't I didn't I wasn't curious how the story was going to go because it wasn't about the story. It was like I remember one very specific moment in the game. There's a a part where you can you know, there's all these towns, and like I said, there's a big map, and there's this huge game world. There's all these places connected by roads, and you can get a boat and go in the sea, and it's just wild. But if you go off the road into the woods, in one particular part, you discover this, this race of of uh, like forest elves or things, like creatures that lived in the forest. Mm-hmm. And I remember, like, Utterly gobsmacked that there was this thing that wasn't on the map that I just discovered and there were creatures there to talk to and story. So to me, it was just about being in the world and what what's waiting behind the next bend or around the corner
0: or, or in a cave. It just it felt like this infinite place to explore. It, that's really interesting, I because the way you're talking about it, the the immediate picture that comes to mind for me is a kid just playing they don't have a goal in mind they're right. just playing and they're not you don't you don't finish um you know playing in the sandbox there's no you know okay you've done everything that you can do now you get out would you say that this is one of the first open worlds that really existed yeah, I mean I think I think
1: games were trying to do that. I mean earlier Ultimas were trying to do that. I think this is the the closest to what open world is now that ever happened, right? We we talk about games like Grand Theft Auto or or Assassin's Creed or all these I mean every game is open world now, right? Yeah. But at that time the idea of go anywhere, do anything at any time, talk to any character, go to any city and and then there's other stuff off the beaten path that's just there for you to find. Yeah, that, that to me, I think just opened my mind, opened my imagination to the idea of this felt like a place and not, and not just a place that exists, a place that was crafted. It was mm-hmm. crafted for me by artists, right? There are people who set things up for me to find them. and. You know, it's wild. I haven't really thought about it like this, but it's kind of sad. Like nowadays, you know, I'm, I'm, I gotta finish Last of Us 2 because next week another game's coming out. Mm -hmm. And I gotta, you know, I gotta finish that game because another game's coming out, whatever it is, you know. And you, as a kid, this is like the game that I got for the next year. Uh (laughs) You know? Games were expensive. uh, yeah, they're super expensive, and it was rare to get something. And, and it just felt like... And there were fewer games coming out at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it just felt like, you know, there was no desire for it to end. There was no get to the end to see the conclusion. It was just, I want to be here. This is what I want to do today and tomorrow and for the foreseeable future.
0: Do you think you would have enjoyed this game nearly as much if you had access to the internet at the time, being able to... Uh, talk to people and say, "Hey, I found this weird uh, little area that's filled with, um, you know, wood nymphs or whatever." Uh, do you think that that would have added to what what you were experiencing, or or taken it away because you would have found out about this stuff without discovering it on your own? I one hundred percent think
1: it would have taken away. In fact, I think that's one of the reason. I, I have, I advocate for not spoilers in life. <laughs> I'm kind of big about that, uh, this uh, unsullied lifestyle that I that I advocate for on, on some of my shows. And I remember very clearly as the internet was sort of happening and I was getting into college and stuff and this website called Game Facts came out. Mm-hmm. I remember my roommates at the time, you know, getting on Game Facts and, you know, finding their way through... Um, um what's the Zelda game that I'm trying to think of the Cell shaded Zelda game? Uh, Wind Waker. Wind Waker, yeah. Like going you know using game facts to get through Wind Waker and I remember being so passionate about That ruins it. That ruins <laughs> like that's not how I find joy in games. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be told. I I want that magical moment where I wander into the woods and there's a whole society here that i didn't know was going to be i didn't want to read somebody going okay the way to min max the way to (laughs) set up a perfect strat you know the way to you get the the master sword quickest you know that's never been my way into the most joy for me
0: it's it's stumbling on and discovering is magic do you you feel like uh, has there been times where you've been playing a game and you're like Okay, clearly the developer had something in mind, and I can't figure it out. I'm going to go to GameFAQs oh, sure. or wherever. You feel sure, okay sure, about sure. that? I mean, there's been...
1: I try to avoid that as much as possible, mm-hmm. um, but there's definitely been times where I'm like, I cannot get past this, and it's frustrating me, and it's going to make me stop playing this game, so I just have to get past this part. I'm not above that, um, nor would I begrudge it to anybody, but I do. I do think that especially with puzzles the not knowing is living in the not knowing for a while is good is fun one of my pet peeves about video games sometimes is uh when it'll like give you a hint too quickly oh yeah you know when you're like stumbling around in uncharted and um you know you're not not sure where to go and then the NPC, the, the character that you're hanging out with is like hey did you look over there at the window and i'm like oh, "No, no, <laughs> don't tell me i don't need to i'm not that stuck yet you know it's um it, it, there is there is a fun in not knowing for a while because that makes the discovery even better. I think anybody that's played Portal or Braid or any any great puzzle game that trusts itself enough to let you be in the dark for a little while, to let you stumble around, because then when you find the solution you go, I am a genius, (laughs) you know,
0: even though that's exactly what they wanted you to do uh, from the start. Uh, Yeah, I'm a my my day job is I'm a science teacher. So I completely understand 100% what you're saying. That's what I try and do every day is make it so that they have to figure it out. I don't I try not to tell them uh, and they really, really don't like that. (laughs) (laughs) I bet. They want to know. (laughs) Yeah, but it's it.
1: It makes the it makes the doing even more gratifying
0: yeah was there anything about ultima 7 that you were like well i wish they hadn't done this or i wish this i wish they would change this about it i don't know if i was
1: sophisticated enough to have that perspective i don't know if i'd played enough games to even critique it in that way it just felt like a a thing that was unfolding in front of me exactly as it was supposed to be Mm -hmm. um i don't know in retrospect I have a hard time even criticizing it either because it just sort of is this thing. I mean it's my favorite game of all time, right so it's just it's it's just this perfect little um I mean I I will tell you this I had a heck of a time um, many people listening probably will have no concept of what this is but you know you had to get a a, a big kernel of your 640k memory mm. uh, free to play this thing. so I was uh, editing my auto exec, Autoexec.bat and config sys <laughs> config files uh, like crazy to get this thing to even run. So in that sense, it was a hassle. You know, it was like this mm-hmm. hugely um, um, demanding thing for for systems, and it was a DOS game. And so I had like I had batch files that I, in order to even boot it, I had all these batch files that I had to run to like take things out of memory and free up your kernel, and it's all this stuff that was a hassle back in those days. So maybe that would be my my biggest criticism was that it was a a a system hog
0: (laughs) (laughs) do you think it would do well today or if is it or is it specific like let's say that it never existed before and Ultima 7 was was announced at the the never coming e3 2021 um do you think that (laughs) uh that they would say uh here's this cool game um do you think it would do well or do you think it's a game of its
1: time I mean, it's certainly a game of its time, right? It is. It is of it, a technologically. There are a lot of indie games, in particular, that are have a retro aesthetic, and I think the aesthetic could still work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we are. I mean, we get, like I said, we get the Elder Scrolls of the world. We get the Assassin's Creed of the world. We get Horizon Zero Dawn, and all these incredibly detailed worlds, um, fantasy worlds, where you're they're highly interactive. I, I think that those outshine just technologically, but I mean, here's something we haven't talked about yet with Ultima Seven. One All of right. the things that's so incredible about it, I think, is a major part of what makes it so special. The beginning of this game is you you turn it on, and it oh, has yeah, this, saw this splash screen. <laughs> It has a splash screen that's like it says Ultima in rainbow colors and there's a beautiful butterfly that floats down like everything is wonderful and magical and peaceful Mm -hmm. and then you press play and your screen goes to static like like there's some error happening with your computer and then a face comes through this demon face this red demon face and it goes. Avatar, (laughs) know that Britannia has entered into a new age of enlightenment. I could do the whole speech if you wanted. Uh, I memorized it. Um, And it breaks through the screen. It's as if this face is pressing through your computer screen. And it says, uh, you know, I'm calling on you. I'm going to protect you. I am your guardian. And then it laughs maniacally. And your master. (laughs) And then the camera... Pulls back from the screen, and it's a CRT monitor, a keyboard, a cloth map pinned to the wall. You, it, it is this meta moment where it is, hey, you're a person in the real world playing a video game, and oh my god, a portal opened up in your backyard. <laughs> go check it out. And you go and you walk through this portal into the video game world. So that like none of the other ultimas did that mm-hmm. and it was like the coolest thing because when the camera pulled back it looked like my computer it looked because <laughs> all computers look the yes, same at did. that point right it looked like my computer it looked like the cloth map that i had it was like that's cool and then then the way the story starts in the game is you you know your avatar walks which in the Ultima Avatar is the name of your character. The a- Avatar. So you, your little isometric character walks into the game world. You walk into the first city, and there's this murder mystery. You walk into this. They 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 you uh, walk into this town, and they go, someone who has been killed. And you go, what? And they go, yeah, yeah, come come look. And you walk into this barn, and there's this ritualistic murder that's happened. Candles and stakes and a body that is like. Uh, bisected or or vivisected is what I meant to say. B- pieces strewn everywhere, gore. As a kid, I was like, "Talk about a hook for a game!" All of a sudden, who did it? What's going on? Who's this demon character? Where are we going? I know I just got done saying that I wasn't like anxious to find the end end of the story, but just like b- being brought into that world that way, games weren't doing stuff like that. It, it, it is. So in that sense, in that sense, I think the game could stand up today because it was really innovative and interesting. And that's that's an interesting idea is, hey, you're a person, you're, you're you, and now you're being brought, you're being transferred into the, you know, it's Tron or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think all of that still could be done well and could still, I think, impress people and just like this murder mystery. The the storytelling, the the hook, the bringing you into the
0: world was so well done. So we live in an age of remakes and re-releases. Would you want Ultima 7 to get a remake or would you prefer maybe instead they bring back the series with a sequel? Well, Ultima 8 and Ultima 9 are god-awful.
1: Uh, they <laughs> yeah, are very, I, very bad heard. games. Very bad game. Ultima nine Ascension is, was trying to be the elder scrolls, right? It was like a 3d uh, world. It was trying to do, oh, so bad. So bad. Ultimate eight. I was so excited when ultimate eight came out and it just completely abandoned what made the series. Great. you like, was no longer had a party or just one character and you like were jumping was jump puzzles and stuff. It's like, what is happening? <laughs> um, So the sequels have not done well. I have always said, I think Ultima seven could be remade with a, you know, with like a Bethesda style engine uh, and would be really cool. Top down or first person. uh, I think I I would love it to be isometric, but I would, I would always, I had always imagined it like more like a Bethesda third person or first person 3d world. But man, doing it in like the Diablo engine or some cool isometric engine would be, I mean, it would be a dream. My understanding is the rights are really mired in, uh, there's an old company named origin that just doesn't exist anymore. And Richard Garriott doesn't own any of the rights. And it's all, it's all, I think impossible, but it is, I, it is a franchise that I don't think enough people know. And what a cool name, Ultima. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Lord British, you know, uh, the, the, the these characters are in just marked in my mind you know uh Io Dupree, dupre these these i I think it's a it it would be wonderful to bring Ultima back if done well uh I just don't think it's ever gonna happen
0: <laughs> any last thoughts on uh on Ultima seven that that we haven't hit um. I think I think there are emulators that can play it now,
1: and I wonder if anybody hearing this will be inspired to do so. Uh, i i don't I don't know how well it holds up. I think I think fairly okay. you know, it's it's um, it's a game about dialogue and exploration and the combat. to me as a kid, the combat was incidental to the experience. It was more about this vibrant, alive place that I got to visit. And I think the intro to that, really drove it home like this is a place that you're visiting from the real world it's a departure from the real world it's this digital realm that has been crafted uh and uh and i don't know i I wonder what people how people will take it if they try it today Uh, but certainly it will i think it will never be unseated as my favorite game of all time
0: I, i do think just for our listeners uh i do think that the game is available on gog uh so i think that you can and i think it comes with all of the expansions and stuff which is hundreds of hours of of you (laughs) visiting britannia uh but jeff thanks so much for joining me on the show i really do appreciate it each episode i uh i try and have my guests close out the show by saying the motto of 143 pixels which is the resolution doesn't matter the resolution doesn't matter The theme song for 143 Pixels is Through a Cardboard World by Tony Lays. You can find more of their music at TonyLays.Bandcamp.com. If you want to follow the show on Twitter, you can find it at Pixels143. And if you want to follow me, I'm at RunJumpStomp. This show is part of the Giant Size Team-Up Network. For more information, head on over to GSTU.net. You know, if there's a particular episode of 143 Pixels that speaks to you, you know, a game that you have played or a game that you started playing after listening to an episode of 143 Pixels, and you want to share your story with that game, then do me a favor and send an email to 143pixels at gmail.com. That's 143pixels at gmail.com. Tell me your story and I'll share it on a mailbag episode of 143 pixels.